Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. I'm joined by Phil Kittramelides and former Denmark goalkeeper Thomas Sorensen. Guys, it's been a busy weekend of football news, which means that two of Europe's biggest clubs will be looking for a new manager in the summer. Phil, probably fair to say a Klopp was a little bit more surprising than, than the Xavi news, right? We've been speaking on the podcast um, for the last few weeks about Xavi's uh, future and I've said uh, a few times that I expected him to um, to not be sacked before the summer and then in the summer reassess his, thing, his situation. So uh, it wasn't a massive surprise um, that he announced that he's going at the end of the season, but at the same time, the way it was done... Uh, did leave us a little bit, uh, a little bit aghast. So we'll get into it a little bit later on in the program. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that Klopp was a was a bigger shock, and absolutely no one saw that coming. Thomas, what was your first reaction when you heard the news about Klopp? Ah, uh, is it April Fools? Um, <laughs> it was definitely a, a huge uh, bombshell for me. Uh, you know, especially how it's been going this season. You know, had it happened end of last season. I could have potentially, you know, understood it. Um, you know, he signed a, a new deal. He's got a contract until 2026, 20, I think. And uh, and the way it's going, you know, he, he's energized the team. They're, they're playing so well. He looks happy, smiling. So I think it's just, uh, you know, just me. It took everyone by surprise. Yeah, let's start with Klopp, uh, who has dropped the bombshell that he'll be stepping down as Liverpool manager at the end of the season. To guide us through the discussion, we're joined by Oliver Kay, who covers Liverpool as a senior football writer at The Athletic. So, Oliver, welcome, first and foremost. Secondly, why has he left, and are you surprised? Yeah, uh, first of all, yes, definitely surprised, or definitely surprised on Friday. Um, maybe it makes a bit more sense, with the benefit of hindsight, joining up some of the dots, and maybe thinking the... Writing was on the wall slightly. Um, I messaged a few people saying on Friday immediately saying, wow, didn't see that coming. In. And they said, well, yeah, I think had this happened 12 months ago, they would not have been surprised. Similar to what Thomas was saying, really, that that, that he did look he did look tired. He looked tetchy and looked sort of like he was struggling to see a way out this time last year. Uh so had had he left at the end of last season, I don't think that would have massively surprised people. But it's just the fact he's looked so re-energised, so reinvigorated, so up for it with this new look team. And um, yeah, the 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 symptoms that he talks about in, feel, in terms of feeling tired, he doesn't he hasn't shown those outwardly. He, he he's looked he's looked like somebody who's um, who's you know really really buzzing again and really enjoying it, but. I think he, I, I think basically he knows he knows that however energized you might feel in when things are going well I think he he just dreads those periods where they you know they fall away again or have have a difficult period of a few weeks and and he just feels things get on top of him and it becomes unbearable so he's he's sort of wanting a way out now because well at the end of the season because he he knows the cycle and ebb of ebb and flow of how these things go can I just ask Oliver from a, from a, like a journalistic perspective? We'll get into the footballing stuff in a, in, a, in a second, but just from a journalist perspective, 
how rare is it that a story like this breaks and no one has any kind of idea that it's happening because in the era of social media and here we go and all that stuff, <laughs> no one saw this coming. Yeah, it's it's really rare. It is really, really rare, especially with a story this big and where, you know, clearly Klopp had shared it with his with his sort of most his very, very tight inner circle at Liverpool and, and the very senior management at Liverpool. He said he he told them in November. I'm amazed it didn't come out. I mean, I know wow. if I if I can mention, say David Ornstein at, at our place and James Pierce, yeah, who have such incredible Liverpool contacts. I'm amazed. I'm amazed it didn't come out. It, it's it's so rare, and it must. Um, it's uh, yeah. I, I think a lot of journalists have been left, you know, kicking ourselves, thinking, how did we miss this? But it's to be honest, Liverpool has become a club where it's become you know very much. Very little leaks out against the club's wishes. Sometimes the club are happy for stuff to leak out, but it, it's not—it's not the leaky club it was twenty years ago when they when they were a mess. Manchester United is not the type ship that it was twenty years ago when they were doing brilliantly. So it's yeah. When you know when something is kept in house so successfully for two months that um, that it, it's a pretty tight ship. Put it that way. Oliver, do you believe the reason? Do you think the reason's genuine? Like, is in burnt out, relax? Is he not going to take another job for a year? I mean, obviously, a couple of days later, the Barcelona job becomes available at the end of the season. So do you believe something like that could tempt him? Or do you think he'll genuinely wait a year, like he says? I think he will wait. I mean, I know I know when he left Dortmund in 2015, he, it was his intention to take um, uh, a sabbatical then and... and you know, return to work the following season. Um, then Liverpool job came up in the October, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll do that." And it was look, that Liverpool job was a mess at, at the time. It's not. It, it was. It, it wasn't. It wasn't an easy gig by any means. It's, he's made it look that, that way at times, but um, that that was. I think the fact that he was willing to take Liverpool in October 2015 tells you he was just desperate to get back to work. Whereas, whereas now I really, really think, knowing what I know about him and people close to him, that he will. He's serious about this and wants to take a proper year off. And Oliver, uh, throw this to you. Like, how do you think Liverpool go about the Fenway Sports Group that's behind? How do you think they go about replacing him going forward? Because you, you're replacing a figurehead that's obviously, you know, whose, whose energy and inspiration is is running through the club, and and uh, you, you're also leaving a power vacuum. You know, you've had Michael Edwards, Julian Ward, and now Smatka is leaving at the end of this transfer window. Uh, you've got players, uh, big players, on 18 months contract. With Mo Salah. You know, have they, do you think they have a strategy now? Do Do you think they they have foresighted this? Do you think they have a a, a very defined shortlist of managers and and a, and a clear vision of of how they're going to replace club and how they're going to sustain this this success going forward. Yeah, I think it's a really good question because I, had this happened two or three years ago, or I think you could see a really clear strategy at the club. You could see what the long term plan is, and Klopp was a big part of that, but hmm. he wasn't. It wasn't one hundred percent him. Um, I think the last couple of years we've seen two sporting directors leave and an interim about to leave. Um, it's been clear to me, I, I, I think that that sort of long-term plan strategy hasn't really been there in the same way. And I think they've become incredibly reliant on Klopp's decisions or decision-making, his powers of inspiration on the pitch and um, so on. But but just for, just for planning and just for strategy and, and just for... Um, so I, 
I think I think I would have trusted more the Liverpool of three years ago when when Michael Edwards was 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 still there to have a to have a plan B to have a sort of well this is this is what we're going to do next. And now we're we're hearing well they've got the two very important positions to fill: sporting director and and manager stroke head coach and you know. The, it, it might be a case of seeing which one they they can fill first, and then and then filling the other. It's you can't really have as much confidence in the decision making process and, and, and the strategy as there was perhaps two or three years ago. But I mean, the idea of Jabi Alonso is is the one that I think comes to everyone's mind, isn't it? I think that's what that was everybody's first thought on Friday, mine included. So it would be interesting to see, you know. It, Perhaps, perhaps if it was the Liverpool of two years ago, three years ago, they would have been able to make a really, really persuasive sales pitch to somebody in Xabi Alonso's position. Will they be able to make that pitch now? Who who, who makes that? I, I just don't know. So, um, interestingly, would for someone like Xabi Alonso, do you think because of his, um, I suppose, stature or reputation growing ever so quickly, even in a, in a short period of time of being coming a manager, do you think Liverpool potentially might not be, I don't know, it's hard to say this, but like kind of the right move for him, maybe big enough move for him, right, as his next one? It's really um, it's really hard to say. I mean, he, he, as, as, a, as a player, he was one who was always sort of one step, two steps ahead of everyone else on the pitch and always sort of... Ne- Never, never took the wrong decision. Um, it seemed um, maybe he's like that as a manager. I, I would say the the two the two issues really are one from his point of view. Well, one is is he there? Is he their preferred choice? But from his point of view, is it just an impossible job? Following on from Klopp, is yeah. that is it is it like? I mean. I know the success in terms of trophies and league titles isn't on the same scale, but in terms of the void, is it like succeeding Ferguson at Manchester United? Yeah. And two, is there a because because it's not as clear who how Liverpool will go about this, um, and who will go about it, and and what their what their sort of recruitment strategy would be? Would there be a danger that they might just? go in there blundering and sort of think, right, well, we need a decision now, Shabby or Roberto De Zerbi or whoever else and pressure and put pressure on in the wrong way and, and turn people off. And he, by, by putting somebody under pressure to make a decision when in Alonso's case, he's, you know, having the season, it's incredible season at Leverkusen. Might, might he think, think, well, that's disrespectful. You can't push me for answer. If you, I want an answer now, it's no, that's just me speculating. But it's it's going to be it's going to be difficult for them to go into it in a way that gets the job gets the per- right person in a really sort of ruthless, calculated way, without scaring them off and scaring off their club. Yeah, yeah but for me, like obviously, Javi Alonso knows Liverpool very well mm. from the five years he played there. Obviously, very new in his management career. He's done really, really well so far at Bayer Leverkusen. And aside where he took over, we're in threat of relegation. So he 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 uh, turned the club around in the season he was there, the first season he arrived. And then this season now, contenders, which, you know, I mean, they're leading. And nobody ever thought they'd have a chance to do what they're doing. They're playing incredibly good football. He's improved every single player there at that club. I don't think a, a manager like or someone like Xavi Alonso, I would think he'd be thinking, look, Real Madrid's job is is done for now. Ancelotti's re-signed. 
I don't see him taking a Barcelona job because of that relationship being at Real Madrid. Liverpool, for me, seems like it's a big step up from where he is. If he were to win the title at Leverkusen, it's one of those ones. Can he do any better with Leverkusen? Where can he take Leverkusen from this point onwards? Is it the right moment then to go to places like Liverpool? And if he turns it down now, will he have a chance in the future? I think it's one of those ones. I think it's a really difficult one for for Xavi Alonso to, to turn down. The question is, you mentioned it there about the legacy, about what Klopp has accomplished at Liverpool. Seven major trophies, obviously winning their first ever Premier League trophy. Obviously, won the the, the, the first division trophy many times before. Um, where does he rate? How, like, if you look at Pep Guardiola, for example, and I'm talking about the creme de la creme, the, will go down, in my opinion, as an absolute legend of the Premier League, uh, having won 14 major trophies uh, in the seven, eight years that he's been there. Five-time Premier League winner and has won the elusive Champions League now with Man City. Where does Klopp rate? Does he rate in the same category as someone like Pep Guardiola or Sir Alex Ferguson? Um, in terms of, I mean, you probably end up looking at trophy counts, don't you? And and um, and yeah, I, I, I would say I would say Guardiola's trophy count is is going to be unsurpassable ultimately. Well wherever it ends up in his in his career um and just the the, the football he's his teams have produced and i would, i know people will say oh he's always, he's he's he always has great players but he makes great players incredible players and he makes very good players great players and he makes good players very good players he he's he's incredible klopp is incredible i i i don't imagine you could you you could you could say in terms of what is a realistic expectation for for klopp to achieve at liverpool and what is a realistic achievement for Guardiola at Manchester City when he arrived 2016? And you'd say, well, it's they've probably both, in different ways, hit the absolute upper limit of of what was ever whatever was expected. I, I think they've they've both, while doing while winning a lot, actually exceeded expectations. Um, so I, look, I, I find it hard to compare for example Guardiola with Ferguson because it, I don't know it, it almost feels like a different sport even mm. a, a decade on it, 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 it's um but it's look, in terms of in terms of the great Premier League managers I think I think people would probably either put Ferguson or Guardiola at the top depending on depending on their their view and then there would be I would say Next on the pantheon, in whichever order, would probably be Wenger, Mourinho, Klopp. Maybe, maybe that order in terms of Premier League greats. But I think in world football, Klopp will go down as somebody who absolutely surpassed expectations at every job he's had. Absolutely, yeah, I, I, without question. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, he's he's on the Mount Rushmore of, of Premier League managers for sure. Uh, <laughs> but but I think for, for Liverpool now, we we can throw all these names in the hat, and you know, De Serbi and Alonso and. But I think for Liverpool, especially when you're trying to 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 fill that vacuum that club is going to leave, is you you got to get the synergy right because we've seen it so many times. We've seen it at Man United. Now you're trying to pluck and play some manager in, but but you haven't got the sporting director. I, I think you, you've got to get a team in there that that works or can work together. Uh, you know, who's had a strategy, who's on the same page, uh, because otherwise you're never going to fill that. So. So, so I think there, there's so many things that they'll have to go into that decision. And, and you know, back to my question, I just question that, uh, you know, 
the Americans behind the you know behind the, the club is is you know is that much on the ball? Um, you know if they can actually get that done, uh, and and they're just going to go out and, and pick the the next big thing that's on paper looks good, uh, but but doesn't really sort the house out, doesn't clear the house and 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 get the structure in place. Yeah, it's it's I I I feel looking at, I mean a lot of people have praised Liverpool's sort of Liverpool as a club and the way it's been run and and, and the strategy and the trend and the recruitment and so on the last few years and and I think a lot of that praise is is um, correct but I also think it's overdone because I think it underplays the extent to which Klopp is the one who makes players look better makes players feel integrated straight away you never hear of people you never you, ne- you never hear of cliques really at Liverpool you never hear of players feeling you know completely disillusioned almost every player who's, who they've signed has either lived up to or surpassed expectations maybe you just say the odd one like Naby Keita who didn't quite work out with injuries and so on but it's it's incredible that you know in terms of their first team signings that they, they just every everyone who goes in just seems to either hit the ground running or have the time and space to be able to build up to speed more slowly and then and then they're running speed within six twelve months it's it's amazing and I do think people and maybe even the management themselves as in as in the ownership maybe they underestimate what uh sort of genius he is in terms of motivation in terms of the feel of the place that he provides and I'm sure he can be difficult to work under and I'm sure he can be work uh difficult to work over in terms of managing managing him from above but I think he will be the most he'll be hugely missed hugely missed because I do think he's the one who pulls it all together uh, Oliver we mentioned one of the big names uh, uh, Xavi Alonso who's been linked with a job Deservey Michel Inzaghi Emery Thomas Frank Nagelsmann the big question we want to know from an Australian podcast perspective, Ange Postacoglu has also been one of the names that have been sort of talked about. Can you see that being a possibility? No. <laughs> Sorry, Oliver, I'm a Spurs fan. <laughs> I could, I, I could see him being on the list, and and um, I don't think he'd be. I don't think he'd be top of the list. And if he, if he was at the top of the list, I think he'd. I think I think Liverpool are above Spurs in the food chain, aren't they? Realistically, um, the same way. Um, I mean, it's it's it's, but I I I I don't see it. I don't see it. I I I could see I could see him cropping up in conversations, and I could see the job appealing to him. Um, but no, I I I I don't think it's the most likely one. I just wanted to reflect a little bit on what we were talking about in in terms of his in terms of his legacy and you look at the 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 trophy count and it isn't you know it's it, it's not huge it's one premier league i mean he's won the same number of league titles as Xavi Hernandez did at, at Barcelona in two and a half years um a champions league which is fantastic and a couple of domestic cups it's not a monster hall liverpool haven't dominated uh, english football during his uh, time but Contrast that with the fervour and passion that he stirred up within supporters and the outpouring of grief, basically, that we've seen with some sections of of Liverpool fans. Um, It feels like the connection that he had with the club went a lot more with what he did on the pitch, which obviously transformed them. They were a mess where he took over and he took them to win in the Champions League and and, and a first Premier League title ever. Um, So he did great work on the pitch, but it almost feels like his connection with the club 
and with the city is 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 deeper and goes deeper than what he did on the football pitch. He seemed to understand where he was and understand the city that he's in as well. And for Australian listeners, you know, Liverpool is a a pretty unique place with a really sort of unique uh, identity and culture and sort of heritage and the way that they view themselves and the world. And I don't know, Klopp seemed to really get that, and that's what's made his time at Liverpool all the more successful, not just the trophies. Yeah, but I also think you, you can turn around and say, yes, obviously he's meant a lot for Liverpool and he's added a lot to the city and everything else, but but he's also added a lot to the Premier League. I think where would he have been without club? And, you know, yes, he's been at, played at or been at Liverpool at a time where Manchester City and, you know, we were just discussing Guardiola, but uh, without club, uh, where would the Premier League be? And, you know, I think he, he has pushed the envelope and had added so much value to to the product and 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 to to the whole feel about you know the excitement about the Premier League so so yeah and no, he's, he's had a massive influence uh, not just on Liverpool but on 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 English football so i'm just wondering in terms of um, from an ex player's perspective guys um where does this leave Liverpool now? Because they know that the manager is going at the end of the season. Is this going to motivate them more? Are they going to go out even more and say, we're going to do it for Klopp, one final push? Or is it a bit of a downer that the manager's going? Like, How would you guys approach it if you were um, playing? I, I think it's interesting because obviously the relationship, the rapport between Jurgen Klopp and his players is very, very strong. Oliver was was talking about before about how he makes players better. There's very few players that haven't been successful under Jurgen Klopp. So I think the relationship with him is is so is so close and so deep. Um, but it, and then you, I think you, we saw it with Virgil Van Dijk when he gave his response to hearing the news about uh, about Klopp leaving. Like all the players were completely in the dark about it, of course, and 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 are quite I think shocked about the the news, the decision. And I think a lot of players have signed for Liverpool and stayed at Liverpool for, because of Klopp. So it's an interesting one. I think if things don't quite go to plan in terms of results, maybe performances, things sometimes you see it players drop off. Sometimes you see people's heads drop. I'd like to think they won't. I'd like to think the way that Klopp has managed, the way he has his relationship with the players, I think they'll just, they'll just keep going. And... I know as a player, I'd be really bitterly disappointed if I was so so much behind the manager and so much my decision to stay at a club, to sign for a club was based on a manager. I'd be really disappointed and I'd feel a little bit let down in some degree um, because you've made your long-term decision based on him being a manager. So I think it would be really tough to take at times throughout the season. And you would kind of almost try to put it to one side and go, right, let's deal with that at the end of the season. Let's try and make the most of what we have, the time we have together. You know, I, I, it, it, you know, I agree with you to some degree, Mark, uh, but, but I, I feel like if I put myself in that dressing room, uh, I think it's going to end up being really positive because I think there's enough admiration uh, and respect for club. Um, you know, the only time I've experienced it in my career was with the national team where the long-serving manager decided to go after uh, the World Cup and and it sort of also galvanized us because we wanted to to give him a good finish because you know it, it been it's been you know it been such a big part of of our career um, and I think in football you're very short sighted I think you know you don't look at next season I think they, these players are looking at finishing this project uh, at the best possible way you know compared to other situations we'll, we're going to talk about Barcelona where there's already a negative atmosphere. And then it's going to go in the opposite direction. I think at Liverpool, 
things are right, uh, and 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 I think they're going to finish and potentially again keep challenging for trophies. Oliver, is there any any indication at all that there may be a negative effect on the Liverpool side between now and the end of the season? No indication whatsoever. Um, obviously, they've they've only had one match at the moment, and that was against Norwich in the FA Cup yesterday. And you would have expected them to win, regardless. But they 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 looked pretty. I mean, it was a it was almost a B team really. But but they but they really um, they really dominated that match. It was very intense in terms of the the way they played, and uh, that didn't seem like a. It didn't seem like a negative yesterday, but look, they've got they've got some huge games coming up. I mean, Chelsea on on Wednesday, Arsenal mm-hmm. at the weekend. I mean, it, it's it's a week which will probably shape a narrative in terms of whether this team has been galvanised or slightly blown off course by by the announcement. And I, I suspect mm-hmm. probably neither at the moment. But um, it's yeah, I, I, th- I think I think pe- people like me will probably be desperate to. Uh, to find some kind of conclusion or, or or whatever from this, but I I I just think <laughs> I think as as Thomas said, where when there's a negative situation already, where or you know where where the reason somebody's going is because it looks it all looks quite frayed and it all looks like things are kind of unraveling and coming to the end of the line. I suspect the reality of it, being, uh, the confirmation of that, can actually make things worse um, over the coming you know. I would say Barcelona might end up sort of being in limbo rather than energised by it. But Liverpool, if they could, if it gets to the final sort of month, two months of the season, and Liverpool's still, you know, maybe they'll have won the Carabao Cup by then, who knows. But if they're still competing on another three fronts, still in the title race, still in the FA Cup, still in the Carabao, uh, in the Europa League, I think that will almost feel like this sort of huge emotional wave is powering powering them on it could be it could be really really powerful and Klopp has been very good at sort of harnessing that emotion and positive energy behind his team so it'll be interesting to see which way it goes and finally Oliver I want to put you on a spot so what are they what are they going to win this season oh um I will say Carabao Cup and Europa League and come close to the Premier League Thomas what do you think yeah, I agree. I think uh, Europa League, I think it's the only one he hasn't won with Liverpool. Um, so, uh, and again, I think they'll beat Chelsea as well on the big day at, at Wembley. I don't think they'll overcome Man City, but, uh, you know, two trophies isn't bad of a finish. Phil? Uh, ooh, mm, this is very difficult. Um, they are five points clear at the top of the table. I mean, I know City have a game in hand, but they are five points clear and maybe this will just push them. I didn't tip them to win the Premier League at the start of the season. It would be a little bit opportunistic to tip them now, but ooh, I've got a feeling that maybe they maybe they can do it, you know, maybe they can do it. So I'll say I'll say they win the Premier League and then, you know, I don't know what they'll do with the other cups, but that's that's a big enough prediction from me, I think. I'll probably cop a little stick from Chelsea fans, but I'm going to say I think they'll win the Carabao Cup as well. Um, Chelsea just too hit and miss. Um, so, yeah, I think they'll win the Carabao Cup. I agree. Europa League, I think, it's a difficult, it's an interesting one, the Europa League, because it's a Thursday. Um, it's a tough one. And if and obviously they're still in contention to win the league. Um, if they weren't in the Europa League, I think there's a good chance they could they could go on and win the Premier League. I know Man City. It's that's weird to say that about Man City because Man City are just relentless and can go on a 15 game running streak without losing. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to be pretty pretty much the same as you guys. I'm going to say Carabao Cup and win the Europa League. 
and go very, very close to winning the league. So, yeah. Ollie, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure and great to hear your insight into uh, Liverpool. Um, and uh, be very interested to see who takes over Liverpool come the end of the season. It will. It will. Uh, you're just wondering now about Liverpool by Leverkusen final, maybe in the Europa League. Um, Ooh. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> with, uh, you know, imagine that. And uh, uh, it, it almost feels like that would be, that would send the football narrative gods crazy, I think. But it's, um, it's going to yes, happen. Please. It's going to happen, isn't it? <laughs> it is going to happen now, just for this very reason. It's going to happen, absolutely. <laughs> the WSL was in action again this weekend. Here's Narelle and Ash with everything you need to know. Schwarzy, every week, Ash and I, we watch the WSL, hoping for a change, but nothing really ever does, does it, Ash? Chelsea always seem to win. That three-point buffer at the top is always there. Yeah, it remains, doesn't it? And they just don't look like slipping up at the moment, do they? I mean, I tune in every Monday morning before we do the show and think, is this the week? No. But it seems like the league itself is in a bit of a holding pattern at the moment, doesn't it, Narelle? Like, those top three teams sort of keep winning. We've got some sort of tasty fixtures just around the corner in a couple of weeks where they sort of all play each other, and maybe that'll shake it up a little bit. Yeah, something's got to give, but... You mentioned that Chelsea, they don't really ever look like dropping points. And we thought they were okay without Sam Kerr. Lauren James has been great. But they've opened up their wallet and they've signed Colombian striker Myra Ramirez for what is a British record fee. And it could be a world record fee if the add-ons in her contract are made up. And I've actually worked it out. It's nearly 750000 Australian dollars. That's not bad. Her. Not bad at all, especially <laughs> coming from Levante as well, where... She's been doing great in Liga F and it's just scary that she's untested in the league. Yeah, it is scary. She's a 24-year-old. But I tell you what, like that, they've already got so much quality across that squad and signing her just adds to it. I mean, she, what is it, four-year deal, mm -hmm. I think? Yeah. And it, it's just amazing. I love watching her at the World Cup. She's so smart um, with her runs off the ball, the way she uses her body, the way her touches, the way she brings other people into the game, like... I cannot wait to see her play for Chelsea and sort of um, hit her stride, hopefully, for them. And, you know, if she can set up... I mean, Lauren James is creating stuff for herself out of sometimes nothing at the moment. If Ramirez is laying stuff off for her as well, it starts to become a sort of scary prospect. And if you're a player or a fan of one of the other teams, reading that news, you're just thinking, oh, my gosh, like, what do we have to do? But you always need a chaser. Sometimes you need two. And that's Manchester City and Arsenal. They're doing a great job at keeping the pressure on, keeping that gap to just three points. And Arsenal, though, is an interesting one in particular because obviously we've got a lot of Aussies there. But something we've noticed recently is Steph Catley seems to have lost her spot in the starting 11. That's the trouble when you go, you know, when you look at the Arsenal team, is like, I'm not sure I know what their best starting 11 is, and I don't think Jonas Eideval does either. And unfortunately, Catley's dropped out at the moment of that starting lineup. I think she can fight her way back in because she's just such a quality player. But they're still, like, we're talking about how good Chelsea is, but we're still, we, we need to... They need to work out which Arsenal lineup is the best one, and I don't think they've worked it out yet. Man City looks settled, Chelsea looks settled. It'll be interesting to see how Arsenal go. Absolutely. Schwartzy, do you guys see any of the chasers actually catching Chelsea from here? Well, you know what? I don't think it's Chelsea. I mean, look, it is still Chelsea's to win or to lose, as, a, as one would say. Uh, they are ahead. They are three points ahead of Manchester City and Arsenal. I still think very much the three teams are in it. This could be the first WSL season whereby you can lose more than two games and still win the league for the first time ever. 
Um, the 16th of February is when Chelsea play against Manchester City. That will determine whether or not Man City is still in the race, in my opinion. And then in March, um, they play Arsenal. So again, that will depend whether or not Arsenal is still in the, in the, in the race come that game in March. So I still think at this stage, there's three teams in it. So Man City and Arsenal still can catch Chelsea. Chelsea obviously have, a, have the huge loss of Sam Kerr, which we all know. Um, and that's that's a tough one for them to deal with. And I think when you look at uh, Man City have just had the news just over the weekend that Jewel Rod has uh, done an ACL, another one, apparently, uh, unfortunately, um, from the women's game that is that is out now injured. So that's that's a big, big blow to them. And of course, Chelsea, record transfer fee for a player in women's football in the WSL, Ramirez Mayra from Colombia, who was playing in, in uh, Spain. So they're strengthened off the back of Sam Kerr being injured. Whether or not she performs straight uh, from the off, that's a big that's a big if. Um, but at the moment, they don't really need it because Lauren James is absolutely on fire, scoring another two goals on the weekend. So, I mean, at the moment, Chelsea don't need it. But there are bigger tests to come for Chelsea ahead. And, of course, it always relies on those big individual clashes between City and Arsenal as well. So, um, And Chelsea do have the Champions League still to contest with and something that Emma Hayes has never won and something that she'd want to finish on a big bang of trying to win the Champions League. I think if... Chelsea were given an option right now. If Emma Hayes were given an option, win the WSL title or win the Champions League, I think, I'm just thinking, I think Emma Hayes would pick Champions League just this season, um, just because she's never won it before, maybe. Anyway, let's just wait and have to see what happens and how the next couple of weeks unfolds. Next up, we're going to chat La Liga and the Socceroos in the Asian Cup. But first, here's a taste of what's coming up on Optus Sport. Breakfast football is back, and it's midweek mayhem. 15 games across three mornings, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Some very tasty treats, including Forest Arsenal, Villa Newcastle, Tottenham Brentford, City Burnley, Liverpool Chelsea, Hatafe Real Madrid, Wolves, Manchester United, and so much more. Morata, finished in style. Breakfast football on Optus Sport. Let's get straight on to La Liga. And of course, the biggest news out of La Liga is Xavi to leave Barcelona at the end of the season. I suppose we're less surprised about it, aren't we? Um, I think the most surprising thing is that he's still actually in his job until the end of the season, particularly after saying it's a cruel job. It wears you down. In Barcelona, you always feel like you're not valued. You're mistreated. That's how the club works. And at some point, you realise there's no point in staying. Phil, I mean, that's pretty full-on and pretty damning, damning about Barcelona. It is. He said a lot of things in this uh, post-match uh, announcement after they lost 5-3 at home to, to Villarreal. Um, he said there can never be a Sir Alex Ferguson figure at Barcelona. That just won't happen here. He also spoke about the, the toll it's taken physically on him, on his mental health as well. It's it's clearly, clearly worn him down. And I, I, I fully understand his decision to, to step aside. What I don't necessarily understand is why he's going at the end of the season. He said, I feel that this is not sustainable. As a coulé, as a Barcelona fan, I feel that the right thing to do now uh, is to step down uh, because the team needs a change. Okay, but you're still going to be there for another five or six months. So where's the change there? Usually when a manager steps down, um, someone new comes in, potentially a new manager bounce, uh, new ideas, uh, fresh coaching stuff. It's it's changed and that can change the 
that can change the results on the pitch and him staying for another five or six months. I just don't see how that is in necessarily the team's best interests. He's come out and said this and I think he saved a little bit of face here because he felt like there was a pressure mountain. I spoke on the podcast before about him potentially going in the summer. I didn't think he was going to be sacked, but maybe the summer it was going to be difficult. And by coming out and doing this, it's projected to be on his terms. He said, I've decided I'm leaving. And it might have been a um, a face-saving exercise. And also he, he said, you know, I feel liberated now. You know, this is going to be a bit of liberation now. Um, you can't, speaking to the press, you can't kill me now. And if I'd stayed here for another year, you would have been on my back the whole time. So I guess he feels liberated, whether it's in the team's best interest. I, I really don't know. I really don't think we're going to see this kind of... Um, impact that we might see with with Liverpool to do it for Jurgen we we might not see that and they might just we might just limp to the end of the season with another really disappointing campaign so yeah it's a it's a it's a, it's not necessarily a surprising decision but the way it's been taken and uh, the way it's going to play out is a is a little bit confusing Phil take us into the head of you know you got Laporte and then you got Deco and and the hierarchy at Barcelona you know what what are their like what are they <laughs> What are they doing? You know, because again, you know, why would he say, you know, why would it be on his terms? Like surely, you know, surely something has to come from them or you would see some strong leadership or, or is it just, you know, well, of, what's your the, view on it? They, uh, they had a talk after the game, uh, Laporta and Xavi, for an hour. He took over an hour to come out for the press conference. And I'm sure in, in that hour, there were some pretty... A frank and sincere words that were exchanged and my reading of the situation is that during that hour uh, Xavi took the initiative and he felt that he wanted to make this on his terms and say right I'm going to do this uh, on my way and if you want me to go fine but let me announce that I'm going in the summer that's that's my reading of the situation it's worth remembering that Xavi wasn't um, on Laporte's ticket in terms of the presidential elections Xavi was uh, aligned with a guy called Victor Font uh, and he was his um, choice for manager when he was uh, trying to be uh, the, the president of Barcelona and it was Laporta who won um, and Laporta had previously said Xavi wasn't going to be the manager but then he sat Ronald Koeman and, and, and brought Xavi in so it wasn't like they had a close bond to begin with. Um, you mentioned Deco who is now the sporting director who is very close to um, Laporta and also Jorge Mendes um, but he wasn't the sporting director previously that was a guy called Mateo Alemán who uh, left in the summer to go to Aston Villa and then he wasn't leaving and then he was coming back and then he went to Aston Villa. It was all uh, very, very strange. So behind the scenes, things have been an absolute catastrophe uh, for Barcelona for a long time. And this just feels like a consequence of that. And it's, yeah, but I don't know if Xavi had had, has too many allies at the moment. Uh, I read an interesting piece in The Athletic, uh, my uh, friend and colleague Dermot Corrigan speaking about uh, the lack of allies. So obviously Laporta, you know, Xavi wasn't really his man. Uh, Matteo Alamein, the sporting director, he got on well with him. He's gone. Uh, Jordi Cruyff, who was the international director, he got on well with him. He's gone. Uh, Sergio Busquets, who was, you know, his uh, good friend and former former teammate, he left as well, which had an, an emotional impact as well as a footballing impact as well. So I guess he might have felt a little bit alone there. Uh, Xavi has uh, decided to call it a day. And do you think, like, you know, you said he wanted to leave on his own terms. Do you think also that's an agreement they came to within the group, within the president and him talking? And almost, do you think almost the Laporte was almost 
uh, I don't know, a little bit uh, worried about sacking Xavi, considering his stature amongst Barcelona fans in terms of as a player? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, he, he sacked Ronald Koeman. He was a pretty legendary figure for, uh, for, for Barcelona, but he got sacked. But maybe if you're the president who loses Messi... Sacks Kuman and sacks Chavi. I mean, it is, the optics on that aren't really great, aren't they? So, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe Chavi deserves that to go out on his own terms. I guess. I mean, they they won the league last season, guys. They won the league last season by double digit difference. You know, this is so where did it all go wrong? Kind of... So, where, where, how's it all gone wrong in such a short period of time? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think if you go back and look at that league title, um, the margins were very very fine, and I think we've mentioned this previously on the podcast. But last season they won. They won matches uh, 1-0 11 times. So they had 11 1-0 wins uh, in, that, uh, in that league victory. Uh, and a lot of those were down to Ter Stegen being extremely good in goal and Robert Lewandowski being extremely good uh, in the penalty area. And this season, Ter Stegen's been injured in goal and Robert Lewandowski has looked a shadow of, um, of his former self. Couple that with the fact that Sergio Busquets has gone and they didn't bring anyone really to replace him. They brought in Oriol Romeo for €3 million Euros from Girona and surprise, surprise, he, he hasn't been able to replace one of the greatest uh, defensive midfielders of all time. So, yeah, it's um, it's difficult to pinpoint uh, one thing. Maybe they did overachieve last season in winning the league title quite so comfortably. Um, but this season, it, it has really sort of uh, fallen apart in in terms of uh, the title defence. And there have been injuries to Ter Stegen, to Gavi, uh, Robert Lewandowski's form has uh, fallen off a cliff. Jules Kunde has been really poor. Araujo's not been as good. So everybody seems to be underperforming, which may be an individual thing, or it may be down to the manager as well. So if he's lost the dressing room, then I guess he, he has to go. And if he can't keep getting the best out of these players, then I guess he uh, has to go. But it is quite startling, given that, again, I repeat, they won the league last season by 10 points. They, it would have been more, but they won it with five games to go and they, they switched off for the last five games. They were really quite dominant last season. And this season, they've, they've, they've been nowhere near that. I, I want to go back to the comment you meant earlier on about what Xavi said, how he said that, I'm going to leave at the end of the season so you can no longer kill me from the press perspective. That's he's not in the clear though, is he? Because if they don't, if they don't have results, they'll be for his head to say you need to walk now, right? Yeah, potentially. But he might just feel. He said he feels liberated, so he might just feel like, ah, okay, well, say whatever you like. I'm out of here in five months. Whatever. I don't. I don't. I don't care that much. Um, Barcelona job is ludicrously high pressure. We know that. I mean, Barcelona and Real Madrid. These jobs are uh, insane high pressure. The local press and. It, it's not like being Manchester United or, or, or Liverpool, because these are huge clubs in, in the UK, but you do not have a 60-page daily newspaper, basically sports newspaper, basically dedicated to these clubs uh, and the scrutiny, and they have to fill lots of pages and they go for you if they feel like they, they have to go for you. So the scrutiny is, is, is unreal. Chavi would have known that. Let's not forget that he was managing in the United Arab Emirates before he came here. This is his first big, proper job in major European football. So he was on a learning curve as well. And he's learned that it is extraordinarily difficult to weather the storm that you always have to weather when you're when you're Barcelona manager. That's why Carlo Ancelotti is so good at Real Madrid. It's not just what he does on the pitch. It's the way that he can, he can deal with everything off the pitch as well, which is really, really difficult. Yeah, but and also it seems like the situation now at Barcelona, it's on steroids compared to what it was in the past. You know, in the past, obviously you had Messi, you know, he would always give you something and you had, 
you know, at least the financials were in order. I think there just seems to be so much going on there that, uh, yes, there's the footballing side and, and you know, you can argue how well he's done there. He's obviously, you know, done reasonably well, but then everything else piled on top uh, with all yeah. the politics, all the financial woes, woes that are there. Well, yeah, you can feel like he's, you can feel why he's run down. So I think we, we we spoke about this maybe a couple of weeks ago when they lost the Super Cup to, to to Real Madrid so convincingly. And it felt like these two clubs are in sort of diametrically opposed situations off the field. Like Real Madrid are really sort of healthy. Yeah, they've got debt, but it's a sustainable debt. They've just refurbished the stadium. It looks incredible. Um, they've got money to spend on on players within within budget. And Barcelona are all over the place off the pitch. And you just imagine how difficult it is to be a manager, to be trying to work within those um, within those constraints, it is very, very difficult. And they've just been sort of teetering on the edge of, of everything. You know, we don't have money for this. Ah, oh, we'll sell something else off. We don't have money for this. Let's sell something. It's always been just to the limit on the edge. And that's no way to run a football club. And I don't think it's any surprise that we see Barca being pretty chaotic this season on the pitch because they've been chaotic off the pitch for a for a long time and they, they have spent money because they sold off a huge chunk of their future TV rights. So they've spent a lot of money on Jules Kunde, spent a lot of money on Rafinha. Um, Robert Lewandowski next season is going to earn 32 million euros because his contract is structured in such a way that the third season um, is the one where he gets a big load of money. So I think with him not performing and the wages going up in the third season, they'll be looking to get Lewandowski uh, out of the door. But yeah, it's just, it's it's been run so terribly for such a long time and it was run abysmally under uh, Bartomeu. That's why they were in such financial straits. But Laporta's come in and he hasn't organised things. He's almost tried, he's, I don't know if he's made things worse, but he's certainly not made it any, any better indeed. And and it's just a a bit of a basket case uh, off, the, off the pitch. And it's, like I said, it's no surprise to see them struggling on the pitch. Where do you see the end for Barcelona? What, what happens to Barcelona moving forward? Does it continue to do what it's doing? Does it continuously be what you say, chaotic, disorganised, um, <clears throat> sort of on the on the on the edge of uh, yeah. uh, of of destruction? Uh, does it continue? Is there is there a, a, an end in sight? It's difficult, Schwartzy, to know what the uh, what the end game is with uh, Barcelona. Now, something that's been touted, which is absolutely unthinkable to uh, a lot of Barcelona fans and goes against the, their essence, but um, might be the future for them economically, is for them to become a sort of a limited company and not to be owned by their members. Because remember, Real Madrid and Barcelona, along with Athletic Club and Osasuna, the four teams in Spain that are owned by their members, they do not have uh, external uh, ownership. Uh, they are owned by their members who vote and decide on a president who takes decisions. Barcelona are in such a bad financial state that it is being suggested now that Jean Laporta could consider making them into um, a company and, and getting external investment because as things go at the moment, they can't continue like this. They can't. So, And I don't know if Jean Laporta is the kind of guy to uh, to take them forward with with prudence and care that is needed in this uh, very difficult situation. So I don't know what the end game is, but that is potentially one for Barcelona, which would upset a lot of Barcelona fans. But Laporta would possibly argue it would keep them afloat and make them financially uh, financially very successful. Who knows? Okay, so a club like Barcelona in such disarray, on and off the pitch, where do they turn to next now that Xavi's leaving? And, even, and, and not only that, who would even want the job? I know it's Barcelona, right? But all that chaos, 
all that off-field yeah. uncertainty, mm. money, like you're juggling like a circus act to try and find money to buy and sell players, who would want the job, Phil? And who would they want? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question because it's not the uh, draw that it might have been you know, a, few, a few years ago. But it is still Barcelona. It is still a massive job. You are still taking charge of one of the biggest clubs in the world in one of Europe's most beautiful cities. So I think you can sell it to, to some managers. But can you sell it to the highest level of elite manager in the continent? And there I might have my doubts. So as soon as this, you know, this news came out, few people were you know putting two and two together and coming up with Jurgen Klopp to Barcelona that is probably not going to happen although we were speaking earlier with Oliver about you know was Jurgen Klopp and he is a sort of a Liverpool fit a, Bar- uh, a Borussia Dortmund fit not a Real Madrid fit he'd be more a Barcelona fit than 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 Real Madrid but yeah um his wage demands might be a little bit beyond what Barcelona can offer him i think in terms of if they're looking for someone I think they can still sell it to someone in Spain. So a Spanish manager coming up from a, a, a lower level Spanish team that is doing really well would still see the Barcelona job as being massive and a huge step and maybe even the peak of their career. So someone like Michel, who is the current manager of Girona, who is doing such extraordinary things with uh, Girona. We'll get on with him uh, in just a second. Um, he certainly looked as uh, uh, a possible uh, replacement. There is uh, Francisco García Pimienta, who is the manager of Las Palmas, who is doing really well with Las Palmas and was in the Barcelona Youth Academy for 20 years. He was manager of Barcelona B. He's got a clear style. He knows the identity. He knows what the club is all about. Uh, but he also knows what Jean Laporte is all about. And he does not have a very good relationship with the president. So that is potentially uh, a no-go. And then there's Emmanuel Aguafil, who is the manager of Real Sociedad. He's done unbelievable work with the, uh, with them, but he he kind of feels like a, a one club man. So I'm not sure if he'd he'd take the move. So if you're asking me uh, who are the uh, runners and riders, I think they will look within Spain because I'm not sure they can bring someone uh, or sell it to someone huge overseas. Uh, get someone in like Klopp, uh, you know, Xavi Alonso if he wasn't a Real Madrid man, you know, someone like that. I'm not sure they could sell it to them. Thomas, yeah, any no, ideas? I, I... Sorry, go on. You know, I, I, I agree. Um, you know, and I think it's important that uh, you know the league, you know the language uh, with everything that's going on there. I think, uh, you know, especially when you can't get someone with a big personality, you know, with the credentials, you know, all the trophies, uh, who holds the respect. I think it's hard to get, you know, an up and coming international aspiring managers that go into Barcelona. I think that that will be very tough. So I, I agree that, Michel, I think, is, is a good choice. I think they can probably get him fairly cheap, you know, from Girona. And, um, you know, so I think that's also going to play a, a big part in it. It's not someone that they have to buy for millions and millions. And, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I, I quite agree with, with Phil on this one. I think you missed one. I think both of you have missed one. Yesterday, the rumours coming out of London, England, Mikel Arteta has been <clears throat> potentially... Uh, or he's been mentioned about possibly also leaving Arsenal into the season. Whether that's true or not, let's wait and see. But that could work, couldn't it, Phil, with Barcelona? Uh, yeah, former Barcelona B player, never made it to the um, to the full team, but he came through the youth academy. He's got an idea of uh, how the uh, how the club works. Um, I can't see that one happening. Have to say, I, I read the article that that we were sharing on our WhatsApp group uh, yesterday, and the article was a, a little bit tenuous. I have to say, and it certainly feels a little bit convenient that this story comes out in this 
very pro Barca Catalan newspaper 24 hours after Xavi decides he's uh, he's leaving. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't read too much into it, but it is certainly a story that has been making uh, headlines here in Spain and, 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 and in the UK as well. But Mikel Arteta to Barca, I think, is possibly a little bit of a stretch. Right, we've talked enough about Barcelona because there are more teams in La Liga, right? <laughs> and of course, the one near the top, Girona, keeps going, don't they? They keep going. They're top of the table after uh, 22 match days. They're a point clear of Real Madrid. They uh, went to Celta Vigo and they beat them 1-0 and heaped more pressure on uh, Rafa Benitez, who's manager of Celta Vigo and just one point above the relegation zone. But Girona are one point clear of Real Madrid, who went to Las Palmas without Jude Bellingham and uh, still managed to uh, get a victory. They had to work quite hard for it. It wasn't a Brilliant performance from Real Madrid, but they managed to get the victory uh, in the end with a, a late goal from uh, Aurelien Tramini. Vinny Jr. scored first after Las Palmas had, had taken the lead. So, yeah, the two teams who are battling for the title at the moment, which is Girona and Real Madrid, both won games, the kind of game that you have to win if you're going to win the uh, the league title. So um, it's uh, it was a weekend where those two at the top kept going, did what they had to do, and... There's a, um, there's a point between them. Interesting, we've got a few midweek fixtures coming up because the teams that took place took part in the uh, Spanish Super Cup uh, a couple of weeks ago had their league fixtures postponed. So this uh, midweek, we've got Barcelona against Osasuna and Atletico Madrid against uh, Raya Vallecano and then Getafe against Real Madrid. So those are the games that Barcelona, Atletico and Real Madrid have in hand against Girona. So after this weekend, um, they're all going to have the same, or after this midweek, they're all going to have the same number of fixtures played and we'll see where we're at. If Real Madrid win that, uh, they'll go two points clear of Girona with the same number of games played. And yeah, there will be a, a slight twist to that, uh, to that title uh, race because uh, Real Madrid will be back on top with the same number of games played. So guys, we should leave La Liga and the Premier League and all that stuff and focus on what we really need to talk about. And that is the Asian Cup and the soccer Socceroos through to the to the quarterfinals. And they beat, they beat Indonesia 4-0. Um, obviously, Thomas lives in Australia, works in Australia. Mark, uh, you're Australian, aren't you, Schwartz? You are. Yeah, so good. Two, <laughs> two, two good guys to talk about this with. Now, tell me, they won 4-0 Australia, right? Can you ever win 4-0 and it be a disappointing performance because this is the kind of vibe that I'm getting from um, what I'm reading, what I'm hearing that Australia won 4-0 but didn't actually play particularly convincingly. Yeah, that's the thing, right? So you're playing against a nation that's ranked, what, 128 in the world or 140 something in the world, Indonesia, and you're in Australia, what, 25, I think we are in the world right now. You're expected to brush those opponents aside and there is merit in that and did we play well? No, we didn't play well, but we did what we needed to do. Um, I thought the energy was there. The intensity was there for for, for a lot of periods of the game. Um, they the spark, did what they had to do. The spark in the final third? Um, was better. Was better than against Uzbekistan where they let it slip. 1-0 up against Uzbekistan. Were doing. I thought they played reasonably well and then almost took their foot off the pedal a little bit. And then as the game went on, they missed a couple of big chances um, and then um, and then kind of were obviously made to pay in the end. It was Beck scoring the equaliser. Against Indonesia was different. They they did, they were a little bit more prolific in front of goal. Um, the the chances, they kind of, they were, I thought they were pretty pretty decent finishes with their, 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 their goals. Um, and I thought that it was job done. No, could they play better? Absolutely. 
but it's a 4-0 win in the round of 16 game, gets them through to the quarterfinals. And now this is where the big test begins because they're either going to play Saudi Arabia or South Korea, who I would say South Korea have massively underperformed. Jürgen Klingsman's under enormous amount of pressure um, because of his consistently smiling on the sidelines. Even when they drew against Malaysia 3-3 and they conceded in the last minute, he was smiling. And apparently the uh, South Koreans are not happy with him at all. Um, so apparently the social media is going absolutely bananas about uh, Jurgen Klingsman and the players. So look, it's an interesting one. I think it's, I think they're getting slightly better. I think the performance was slightly better, and it's about you know getting to the final as or as far in the tournament as possible, not peaking too soon. And they certainly haven't peaked too soon, that's for sure. And there's a lot of improvement ahead for the Socceroos. But look, I'm one of those ones who think, job done. I know how hard it is to play against teams who are so much lowerly ranked than you are and you're expected to beat them and you're expected to beat them convincingly and you're also expected to play incredibly well against them. That is that is not easy. So I'm I'm reasonably happy with the result and I know the performance can get better. Yeah, and I think we also have to look at the, probably the further Australia go in this tournament, the more the role will suit them. You know, the more of an underdog their potential will will be, and and it'll suit their playing style as well. Because you know, we we have to be honest that you know there's not a lot of huge individual talent. You know, there, there's sparks. We saw Craig Good when he came on, and I thought he made a difference. You know, there's some young players, Jordy Boss, that can spark. You know, from time to time. You know, I miss Duke. I think they, they need him fully fit. And Fonaroli, you know, he's been great in the A-League, but, you know, he still hasn't scored for the Socceroos. So so I think, but sitting back against, you know, either Saudi Arabia or, or, or South Korea, where you, you will maybe be the underdog or at least at the same level, I think it was actually suit them because they're, they're, they're you know, they're keeping clean sheets. You know, Matty Ryan didn't have much to do in this game. Uh, you know, they're, they're strong on set plays. And sometimes you have to play to your strengths. And, and you know, let's be honest, we, we can't expect them to be, you know, sorry, uh, Brazil or Argentina or, or, or France. You know, they, they are who they are. And I, and I think they can still win this tournament uh, if he mixes the cards right and, and uh, with a little bit of luck as well. And, and as the games come up, they'll suit them better. You were going to say Barcelona then, weren't you? That can't be as good as Barcelona. I was, but yeah, but yeah, because yeah, you know, I, I don't want that. I don't want that comparison right now because I don't. Think <laughs> no, Barcelona I'm talking about right. ten years ago, Barcelona. That, that's, <laughs> okay, that's, that's fine. what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's who fine. would who, who would win now, Australia versus Barcelona? Let's not even go there. That's that. That's another whole podcast all in itself. Let's not even go there. I think there's there's this one really, in particularly fascinating stat for me. Harry Sutter has now scored as many goals for the Socceroos as. Mark, Mark Viduka. That is yes. that is like, that is mind blowing. I mean, I just looked up Mark Viduka's stats with the national teams, forty three appearances, eleven goals. And it just seems like that that that's that has to be wrong. <laughs> I feel like that just can't be right. Um yeah. well you were there. Yeah, but that's the strength though. That that's the strength, you know, of of the team. I think, you know, you got Jackson Irvine as well. So you can like with that. No, the stat about Mark Viduka. Win any game. No, I mean the stat about Mark Viduka only scoring yeah, 11 yeah, yeah, goals yeah, of has course, to be wrong. But I'm saying in the current, <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, but he's a defender. But, uh, you know, I think it's a huge strength for the current team that, you know, that you have, you know, those kind of players that in a tight game can 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 score. And, and Suter has, has been brilliant over the last couple of years since he's come in. That, I mean, that goal was undefendable, right? That, that delivery, that yeah. delivery from... 
from from the free, free kick was absolutely superb, and the run and obviously the flick on that's and that's, you can't defend against that. No, 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 no. So uh, you know, and and that's a weapon, um, and so that's why I think in these tight games, you know, that that's that's an advantage you have to use. Um, Saudi or South Korea in the next round? What's your gut feeling about it, uh, Thomas? Ah, uh, you know what? Uh, I, I think I would prefer Saudi. I think you know it. They haven't been too impressive. Um, I think Mancini's been been at the head there. There'll be a lot of pressure on him. Um, you know, I don't I don't like any team with with Son in. I think he can always do something on his own. Uh, so uh, you know, just, despite them not playing potentially to to their to what we expected, um, I, I still. I still would want Saudi Arabia, I think, and um, I think Socceroos could could beat them. I'm absolutely desperate for Saudi Arabia to beat South Korea, so Son can get back to North London. <laughs> well, look, I think there's a possibility, right? Because South Korea just have not been performing well, and like I said earlier on in my intro, um, Jürgen Klinsmann. I mean, I've, I've even read a report from a from a South Korean. Maybe it's less uh, South Korean journalist. Maybe it was lost in translation translation sorry and it was him saying that the south korean football fans hate him so for smiling that well that's one of the things um they think he's they, they the team's got no direction um they've got no understanding of how they want to play and that klinsman is not leading by authority on the sideline he's just basically standing there with a grin on his face for vast majority of time um, the assistant is the one barking orders on the sideline. That probably has to do with wow. language, of course. Um, so there I, is a lot of lot of unhappy people, um, and also uh, since I thought the, the Catalan South, press was harsh. Well, yeah, and then since the World Cup, um, obviously South Korea did, did well at the World Cup. There were some players there that were really lauded for their performances, and now they've been absolutely um, attacked by by people on social media, and it's really affecting the team. So there are a lot of things that are not are not right in the South Korean side right now. So I think, yeah, I agree. I think if if Saudi Arabia can knock them out, that is a big plus um, and chances for the Socceroos. Obviously, they have to get past Saudi Arabia. But in terms of getting one of the big, big teams, for me, pre-tournament, one of the favourites in South Korea out of the tournament. Right, that's all we've got time for this week, guys. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Thomas, for joining us as always. Um, be very interesting to hear your insights, certainly, Phil, from a Barcelona perspective and, uh, and of course, us trying to uh, digest all the news with Xavi and Jurgen Klopp leaving in the season. Remember, you can watch every game of the Premier League, La Liga and the WSL live and exclusive on Optus Sport. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.